Yo, yo, yo. The magic of Garba and the new Taco Bell menu. My guest this week probably could have done a whole episode on just those two things, but of course, I made her talk about a few other things as well. I asked her about her time as a trilingual COVID contact tracer and about an engineering internship that she did at the start of college and how it relates to her current career as a neuroscience major at the University of Michigan. Go Blue! She's also a pre-med student and has been blogging that journey. You can find her at mymedmap.wixsite.com or just search up Krupa Patel MedMap. MedMap is one word. I was super impressed with her insights on the role of a physician, specifically why and how she felt that their duty should go beyond the individual patient that's sitting in front of them. In addition, we chat about her summer in New York City and have a really interesting discussion on differences in language and cultural retention between younger and older siblings. Without further ado, Krupa Patel, welcome to Brown People We Know. You want me to refer to you as Krupa? Or uh, spinach baby, Pollock baby, which one oh do you prefer? Oh my gosh, you were, yeah, we should totally start it off with, hey, we have Pollock baby. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're starting out. <laughs> we'll go through like a bunch of different stuff, but I wanted to start with your volunteering because you volunteered at a lot of different places. So like I've seen everything from the Hindu temple and, and Project Rishi, economic empowerment in India, right? To Camp Kesem and Alex's lemonade stand. So one of the experiences, the volunteer experiences that stood out to me was the COVID contact tracer. But COVID is also like in the news a lot these days, right? And it changes the way that we're all living. Was it intimidating when you first were doing that? Tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, for sure. I think when I first started off contact tracing, the first couple of phone calls, I like just couldn't do them by myself. Like we have supervisors during shifts. So she usually jumped on and she kind of did one with me. You never really know what you're going to talk to, what a person's going through. I think that's what I learned from that whole experience. And I'm continuing to learn because this is something that I'm continuing to do because COVID hasn't really left yet. (laughs) But it did provide a lot of insight onto how it really affects families and just what people are going through on a social level. Like I know medically speaking, we can look up stats, we can look up facts, we hear about it on the news all the time. But I guess I never really realized how much it might mean to a person to just have someone check on them like every single day. And it kind of creates like this big like value onto their lives. And like it kind of makes me feel significant too, where you know, I'll call people and um sometimes it's simple as like, oh my gosh, thank you for calling today. Like I literally don't have anyone else to talk to, or I haven't even seen my family in like months on end, and that really means a lot that you check in. And you know, obviously you're gonna get your people that are annoyed and like you know, don't want to hear you talk or hear you question them. But I think this is a really difficult situation. We're dealing with something that's been around, but like not never to like this grand scale. And I think in a weird sense, it does bring people together. I think people are suffering and to some extent they're suffering in the same way. So I don't know. I think I really got into it because obviously as like a pre-med student, there wasn't much to do during the pandemic. And we were all just desperate to find something. And I guess I'm not really like a big public speaker and I get a lot of phone anxiety naturally just to like talk on the phone with a random stranger, but there's a script to follow. <laughs> there is like a structure and a protocol. 
And if there's even like something that I can do to help people during this difficult time, I think that that's what, that's why I got into it. And that's what it means to me. So it sounds like there was a lot of personal significance being like one-on-one on the phone with someone. And I think something that's really interesting, something unique was you're trilingual. So you operated in English, in Hindi and or Gujarati. To be honest, I'm not sure how different those two are. So you can tell me a little bit about that. And Spanish was the last one. To give you a little bit of context, so I speak English and Telugu. I grew up speaking both, but they're kind of like my right and left hand. English is my right hand. I can do pretty much anything with it. My left hand exists. I can use it, (laughs) but I wouldn't throw darts with it. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't use my Telugu in a work situation. Do you feel equally comfortable in all three of those languages? And uh, when you're speaking Gujarati versus Spanish, do they both feel like foreign languages or I think Spanish, if anything, felt feels more like a foreign language because it's like what I studied in college and high school. Gujarati and English, I feel like they're both fingers on my right hand. I wouldn't call them necessarily left and right because I think I, I interchange between them really, really fast, really quickly. And I guess I kind of grew up in a household where even today when I like talk to my mom and dad, even in like a public setting, like it'll just slip out. And, you know, we don't even know what to call it. Like, is it Gujinglish or Inglati? Like, we don't really know. It's just a combination of both. But like, I get what you mean by like saying it like in a workspace. It's not common. I can't think of a situation where I'd ever have to do that. But I guess another thing about contact tracing is the main problem was that the people that we have in Michigan, or especially the affected people, did not speak English as a primary language. And there was a need. And so I think that's where like my place came in because I did feel comfortable there are obviously a couple words, though, like when it comes to COVID, where I can't translate that, translate that into Spanish or Gujarati. Like pandemic, for example, I really wouldn't know what to call that. I think that was pretty generic. So I think it did incorporate a lot of English and, you know, Spanish or Gujarati. I think it was like a mix of them both. And my accent does change <laughs> with each one, which I found pretty hilarious. So I think if anybody else was to walk in while I was in the middle of a shift, I think it'd be pretty funny for them to see. But um, besides that, I think it think it came pretty naturally. Yeah, the language thing is really funny because even though my English is much more fluent, I do the same thing of like weaving between the two. I have this other thing where if I see an adult that looks like a Telugu adult, I don't do it intentionally, but my brain just switches <laughs> to Telugu. I guess it's a part of growing up with both languages. Did you usually speak like Gujarati at home and English outside? Or As I grew up here, my mom and dad were really big on like speaking Gujarati at home. Like they pushed for it a little bit because we wanted to maintain a cultural aspect. And I loved it. I've always loved being bilingual. And I think at school growing up, everyone thought I was just so cool. They want me to teach them words in middle school. And I just, I got a big kick out of it. So I can definitely interchange more so now because I think as I grow older, there's a lot more words where I realize I can't translate them into Gujarati or Hindi for that matter. Like it's just, just easier to say in English. And Obviously, I can get my point across faster, too. But yeah, I do speak English primarily outside, but I, I really do try to speak Gujarati at home the most. Um, I think my parents, we, we love that. We love keeping that as a part of like our family and like how we grew up. Yeah. What are some other ways that they pushed you to retain culture that you kind of sought out on your own? I think one of the biggest is Gurba season. We, we love Gurba. We're like a big Gurba family. Like When it comes to around that time, unfortunately, I don't know if that's going to be the case this year, but we hit probably every single temple within the vicinity. Our legs are like tired by the end of it, but that's something that we really enjoy. 
Wait, so I'm just... super South Indian. So tell me what Garba season is. No, you don't even know. No. <laughs> oh my! I know like Bangra and Paneer, and that's the extent of my North Indian. <laughs> oh knowledge. my god! So okay, I guess in a nutshell, if I was to explain it to someone, it's kind of like a like a puja aspect. You go in a circle basically, and it's like to a rhythm, and there's like it's like a coordinated movement. It kind of goes with the flow, and you basically follow the person in front of you, and then the person behind you follows you. It's kind of like a circular train, if you will. So yeah, there's a religious component to it where we're dancing for, you know, for Bhagwan, for God. And it's just, it's the most wholesome time of the year, in my opinion. Like families come together, kids join in, you know, older people join in. And it's, I think the tempo varies. So like maybe the outside circle is like probably like the slowest. And it's kind of like the older people that want to, you know, just clap their hands and just like go in a circle. And then as you get more and more towards the middle, it kind of gets a little bit younger and I'm like all the way in the middle and like that middle circle just rapid fire going so hard. But it's, it's, it's really, really wholesome. I think everybody should go at some point in their lives. I think I bring a lot of my own friends, honestly, from college back to my hometown for a Gerba season. Like I give them some of my outfits and we just, we go. I think anybody can do it. You're the oldest of three siblings, right? Do you find that the retention across the three siblings is the same? Like do your younger siblings also speak Gujarati? Okay, that's a really good question. They all do speak the Gujarati, but I think we do vary in like how well we know it and how comfortable we are utilizing it, for example. Like if I did see, you know, an Indian person in public, I think I would I would be probably the most comfortable approaching them in public and, you know, speaking in Gujarati, um, Hindi, a little bit of both. I think compared, so I am the older uh, sibling of three of us. So my sister's the middle child and then it's my brother. And even though we're just all two years apart, I have noticed like my brother... He knows Gujarati well, but not as well as my sister. And she doesn't know it as, as well as me. So it does vary. We often joke about it that like, when it comes to phone calls and talking to relatives from India, I'll get the phone call first and we'll be mad impressed. And then my sister, maybe slightly less impressed. <laughs> and then when it's time for my brother, he can maybe manage out like a, hi, how are you? And he just wants to like, get rid of the phone. <laughs> so it definitely does vary. But I think overall, I think my parents really did do, try their best and like, we really tried to like maintain it as much as possible. That's why they really pushed for like talking in Gujarati when we're at home. My brother's not like the biggest fan of it, but we do try to keep that, keep that together. In terms of like, I guess other things we do to like maintain our culture growing up besides Gerba and like speaking the language, we get really big into like holy season and, you know, Diwali and just, you know, big Indian uh, holidays and even in the new year, we really try to like branch out and meet like people in our community. I think that's really, really important to us. It can be kind of hard, uh, I guess, growing up even in like a small town where maybe it's not as diversified. But I guess going to temples and, you know, going to events and things like that at the temple periodically, like that's good for like meeting people and making those connections. You grew up in a town of 4,000 people. Did you find it more difficult to retain culture for that reason? Or did you feel like because of temples and, and the local community, it was easy enough? I think not to like sound cliche, but like India and parts of India can be found literally at every corner of the world. And like, I firmly believe that. And that's just how I grew up thinking. And it's very, very true. Even in a town of 4,000 people, I think there's just such a respect and love for India here. Even among the few of us that are Indians, that it's vibrant, it's vivid, and everybody knows it. And I think the beauty of going to a small town is, you know, you can go to a grocery shop and you already know who's going to be there. And there's no surprise. But 
I think even finding people that are outside of our culture, no matter what demographic they are, they have a mad respect for our culture, our heritage. And I think it's because of the fact that even though it's a small town, everybody that is Indian and everybody that does maintain that cultural value and like want to share it, we share it proudly. And we really do wear it on our sleeves to the point where even though it's a small town, I guarantee you that if you did see someone who wasn't Indian, they would know about us. They would know about Gerba. They would know about Navali and Holi because they get into it themselves. I think we share we share India here and we share our love for the country here. Really, really big. That's super cool. It sounds like you're spreading it kind of around you in, in that smaller town because everyone knows you. And so they have that connection. Back to the siblings question. So you mentioned that maybe your younger brother, his Gujarati isn't as good as yours. Do you think that you feel that it's more important to retain culture than he does? Or why do you think that difference exists? Because my sister are kind of, my sister and I are kind of the same, right? So I speak Telugu, she doesn't, but we're seven years apart. For y'all, it's much closer. So I'm curious where that difference came from. Yeah, we often do talk about and think about it. And I think it's just more of just, things can change so fast in two, four years. And it almost kind of weirds me out because it's just four years. Like I wouldn't think that there would be a difference. But as the oldest, I think my parents did spoil me a little bit and they gave me a lot of love and affection. And you know, a lot of attention was on me when I was growing up in terms of my like infancy development and like making sure that both those of those languages was like heavily integrated into my development. Compared to my brother where by that time it was number three, you know, <laughs> I'm sure my mom was exhausted. So we did like speak as much as we could inside the house, but he definitely grew up, I think, with more English around him just in terms of like by that time maybe my mom had put him in a different preschool and maybe emphasized you know learning more at that age and it wasn't so much of a big deal I think for him to retain culture during his development but I don't think he values it any less if anything I think he actually puts in such a hard effort to learn he really does this try and it's, it's adorable I think it just naturally it just happened to work out that way because like I said like two years I mean you don't think it, it would be that much of a change but Four years, maybe. Maybe that's why. So in the first episode, we talked about changes that Ravi would like to see in Indian culture. And one of the things that he mentioned was that it tends to be somewhat patriarchal. Just boys and girls are treated differently. Do you feel like you see any of that with your parents, the way they treat you and your sister versus your brother? I think there are moments where that can happen. But when that happens, it's usually like in a large family function where I think I would agree with him. I would say that there is a patriarchal aspect in Indian culture, but that has been ingrained in Indian culture for like the longest time. And it's just one of those things where it's systematic change and it, it doesn't just happen overnight. But in terms of like my parents and like how I was raised, I think if there's one thing that is different from like the rest of the world and the rest of Indian culture, I think it's the fact that my parents have like always, always emphasize there's nothing that you can't do just because you're a girl. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And it's one of those things where like, even if we're in family functions and obviously it does get brought up, like Krupa, you are 20, you know, you're approaching that age, like marriages, hello. Like it, it is a conversation, the expectation of being an Indian wife. And I think my dad and mom are always the first ones to speak up. If she wants to be a surgeon, she's going to be a surgeon. That's my Indian daughter. That, that's who I raised. Like her sole purpose in life isn't to have an arranged marriage and 
be the ideal Indian, you know, wife and woman role that is so emphasized. So I think things have definitely changed in that aspect. And they're very, very, very supportive of the fact they don't let me or my sister see life any different than my brother. I think that was just a big, big, big factor into like how I was raised and how comfortable I feel being Indian and still proud to be an Indian, even if I'm not taking on that expected role of what an Indian woman in society might look like. Yeah. Let's dive into your career a little bit. At the beginning of college or, or right before college, you did an engineering internship and you pivoted from that into medicine. So could you talk about that? Absolutely. I'm a big learner. Like if there's any learning opportunity, I will jump on if there's even a remote interest. And I think that's exactly why I got into the electrical engineering internship to begin with. I love cars and I've grown up with like my dad is an engineer, my mom is an engineer. And so I think there was always that secret expectation of you know, following in their footsteps. So I tried out because um, I was just really passionate about robotics in high school and cars and I thought I would enjoy it. And I did enjoy it to an extent. Like I did love working on cars, learning about what goes into building a car, the math behind it, but also the science that like goes behind simple things as just like wires. Like you don't consider like what really goes behind, you know, turning on your radio, turning on your AC, what makes the lights in your cars work. And I could probably talk about this all day, but I was the person behind the scenes kind of making sure that those wires worked, what those wiring diagrams looked like. The best way for us to design the wires in your car so that everything could work comfortably and kind of breathe. So in case there were any, any knots and any complications, you know, you're okay in the case of an accident or things like that. And it was just like the body. The way I see it, just I was working on the nerves of a car. And now I just want to work on the nerves of a brain. And while that internship was amazing and I got to learn all about, you know, the electrical field of computers, I chose to still work with electrical field, but just with humans, not with cars. So it definitely was a quite the pivot because they are separate fields, but I drew a lot of parallels between like the nodes of Ranveer and like the humans to like the wire nodes of a car to simple things as just like circuits and like the circuit of your brain and like brain networks and things like that. So it was a great field for me to experience just because it did expose me to a lot of the technical aspects of engineering that I don't think I other, otherwise would have been exposed to as a pre-med. I would have never learned coding. I would have never learned about circuit diagrams to this extent. But in terms of like my interests, I think, I think as my dad told me, you were all, you've always been working on nerves. You've always loved nerves. You just changed the subject. <laughs> and um, that's exactly what I did. So I think it was very, very crucial for me to have that internship to really find what I enjoyed. But there are so many parallels. And I think you can always draw a parallel between anything that you're passionate about. And it never felt forced to me. It felt more of like, this is what I'm learning. I love it. I can't imagine what it would be like learning this in an actual human. And that's exactly what it turned into. Yeah. And you picked up some really poetic metaphors along the way. I did. Yeah. So I know a lot, like I was pre-med myself, and I know that a lot of pre-med students are very focused either on the practice of medicine, so the actual medical aspect, or on research. But I noticed that you spent a lot of time branching, right? So you worked on the business aspects with Hudson Neuro. You worked on neuroprosthetics with Michigan Medicine. And you've looked into some, some work with like the medical advisory committee at, at the University of Michigan hospitals. So between like 
policy and devices and, and business, are one of those more attractive to you? I think as a physician, policies is almost a given. You have so much voice as a physician and so much that you can do with it. And I think sometimes that can not be expressed or advertised as much, but you can. You have a you have a say and you have a right in all these policies. Um in healthcare and the healthcare system with medical devices, medical enterprise, like you're able to speak. It's just a matter of finding that voice and finding the platform to use it. So I definitely am passionate about using my platform and basically using the privilege of having that degree and being able to be a doctor that uses my voice. So I'm very passionate about that. Uh, the tech sector aspect of it is more so what makes me happy, what else I can do with a degree besides just, you know, treat patients directly. If I was to work in the tech sector along with it, I can create something, create a novel device, something like that, that can help patients indirectly, um, where maybe I don't get to see that on a daily basis, but I know that it contributed something to the field that's substantial that I know that it's going to be used by other doctors across the country, world, even aim big, you know? Yeah, for sure. You started this blog, MedMap, to kind of chronicle your pre-med journey. There was a specific quote that stuck out to me. I'll, I'll read it out to you. And maybe you can tell me a little bit of context around that quote and add some color to that statement. So the quote is, Maybe it's assumed that a physician's primary commitment should be only to take care of the individual patient and that it may be inappropriate for doctors to engage in controversial topics. On your blog, you've written about the med bikini study. You've written about the current race struggles. Can you talk more to that statement and why it's important for you to stand up? I actually had three doctors read this blog post before I posted it because I wanted to make sure. I was respecting everybody and they, you know, they agreed with me and they stood with me. But that particular line, the reason I said that and I felt like it was necessary to say is because when there's a race struggle and someone ends up in the ER or ends up in the hospital from force relating to race, whether that be police brutality or any other situation, the person that's going to see them is going to be a health professional. And we are in a position where we have a voice and we can speak up about it, but there is a stereotypical painted image of being a physician and a healthcare professional where we need to be impartial. We need to be civil. We need to be professional and be really careful with the person that we portray on social media, you know, in our daily lives, even on a professional level. And while I can understand that that is important and it can be an attestment to our character and our job, as a human being and as a physician that treats other people, I think partially that's wrong. And I wanted to say something about it. There shouldn't be a, you know, a filter on physicians that they're perfect human beings that, you know, need to be quiet. And all they do is they treat patients. You treat the whole patient. First of all, you don't, you don't just treat the patient. You treat what went wrong with the patient, what caused that patient to come in in the first place. Nobody ever wants to be in a hospital. I think that's something that I've learned in my journey so far is, Anybody that walks in that office or walks into the ER does not look happy. Nobody wants to be there. They're there because they need to be there. And as a physician, we need to recognize the fact that we're in a position to speak up. And that might mean being a little bit uncomfortable, having something said about you that you don't want to have said about you. But if you don't speak up, who, who will? Who will attest to the fact that you see 
the disproportionate amount of colored people that come into the ER and the people that you have to deal with. You're the one that, you know, cleans up those stitches. You're the ones that operates on them. But you don't want to speak up about what caused that in the first place. How are you supposed to treat the whole patient if you can't treat the problem that caused it in the first place? So that's where I stand. I know it's a very, very sensitive topic and it can be kind of taboo in the medical community. And I don't think it should be. I think this is something that I needed to speak up on because if I didn't speak up on it, who else would? And I was trying to convey that, hey, I'm not a doctor yet. And people might think that because I'm in a position where I don't have a degree or you know my career on the line, maybe that's why I feel so comfortable saying it. And while that could be true, and I'm not going to deny that, I don't think my perspective is going to change five years from now, 10 years from now, even as a pre-med. Like, I have an obligation to speak on this because I want to treat patients, colored, non-colored. I want to treat everybody. And if I, if I can't feel comfortable or safe enough to say this to the world via a blog post, how am I supposed to look at a patient in the eye and just treat them and be like, okay, well, this is great, but you know, I already know you're going to be here next week because this is the way that the world works because you're colored. Yeah. And you made a lot of really great points about where the funding for research goes and how that's allocated towards diseases that affect certain populations more than others. I think this is also an interesting question because the way that you phrased it right now, just be impartial, be professional. I've seen some of that in the immigrant community as well of as you're coming up, just keep your head down, work your way up, right? Do you feel any of that sort of pressure from your parents or from the community? Well, let's just say I posted this article, right, about the med bikini. And the next day at dinner, my dad sat down with me. He's like, I read your post. And I'm like, oh, what did you think? And I was terrified. I, I was because I did very openly talk about, you know, women <laughs> in the medical field, what they wear, body image. And quite frankly, I did, I did say the word bikini a lot, as I should in a med bikini article. And I was really, really shocked at what my dad said. And it was, I remember this very vividly. He was just like, that was really well said. And let me know if you're going to post a picture anytime soon. <laughs> that was it. And I just, I had no words. And um, I think, I think my parents understand that it's a tough field. It's a tough field enough as it is. And it definitely doesn't help to be a girl, be a minority girl, and kind of have eyes watching you and watching everything you do. And in regards to that particular post, sure, um, I'm sure some... Indian aunties might be reading and going, oh my gosh, what is this girl thinking? Let me find her shoddy.com profile and like expose her. Like, I'm sure there are people out there. But to the next Indian girl that might be reading it, to the next Indian pre-med girl that might be reading it, it just takes one person. It just takes one person to voice something that might be taboo in our community, that might not be recommended by Indian societal standards for someone else to be like, wow, this is so relatable. I don't want anyone to read that article without me have, like, having written that blog post and just be like, oh, man, I feel like I do need to keep my head down and keep working. I mean, I understand that in terms of like, your goals, and I, I am kind of like that, um, where I'm driven in a sense where I do keep my head down and I do keep working. But I'm not afraid to keep my head up when I hear something that isn't right and needs to be said. I think that is the mindset that my parents have taught me to have. It's just you do, you do your thing. You work hard. But when something catches your ear, 
you know, it's okay to stop what you're doing for a little bit to kind of speak up on that and then keep your head down and keep working. Because how am I supposed to keep my head down and keep working when there's literally a block in the middle of that path? And that was a block in the middle of that path. So I needed to say something. The fact that you wrote that blog post, someone else might see it and notice that it is okay for me to speak up. So kind of starting those conversations and and being willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And I guess bringing it back to where your career is now, even your first Instagram post that I saw was on LinkedIn. Can you speak about Dr. Chowdhury and how that relationship started and, and what happened after? Yeah, he, uh, I hope he listens to this because um, he always tells me I tell the story best. It, it was quite spontaneous. So you're in Michigan Ross. So as I'm sure you're familiar, networking is, is very, very important in Michigan Ross. It's always emphasized. And as a freshman at the University of Michigan, I had a lot of Ross friends. And, you know, they were always talking about LinkedIn and how much of a big deal LinkedIn was. And, you know, it's just a mere pre-med that was just trying to pass freshman bio at the time. I was like, I don't know what the big deal is, but let me let me just try it out. And I think it turned more into a little bit of like a game and competition among my friends to see who could be the most networked, a Ross kid or simply Krupa Patel, the pre-med. And I took it pretty seriously. I'm not going to lie. And at the time, since I worked at that engineering company, it actually helped me out where you know, everybody in the company was super friendly and just like, yeah, I'll connect with you on LinkedIn. And before I knew it, I think probably from like overnight, it was definitely overnight. It went from like me being connected to the five people in my family to like the 20,000 people in my company. And it just kind of blew up from there. I think I took the initiative to reach out definitely. And it was just a learning opportunity where I just realized on that platform, everyone was just so open to sharing their experiences. And all it really simply took was just a simple, hi, hello, um, and how are you um, on a LinkedIn message. And so Dr. Chowdhury was a mutual surgeon that just kept popping up in my uh, feed, just from doctor, doctors that I had previously shadowed, um, you know, in high school and things like that. And so I was bold and I just, you know, connected with him one day and he messaged me saying, are you, I see that you're like majoring in neuroscience. Would you have an interest in coming to New York and shadowing me for like the summer? I mean, I was like, yeah, this would be great, but I, I was hesitant. Like, you know, this is, he's a stranger ultimately. Like, how is this going to go? So the first thing I did is went and told my mom and dad, and they were, again, very hesitant, but very supportive as they always are. So much that we actually drew, like, we drove up to um, New York in April to go see him. And we met him, and the position was very serious. It was a medical assistant for his private neurosurgery practice. And but my parents just saw the light in my eyes. As soon as I saw him talk and just about his patients, what I would be doing there, there was nothing that could take away that sparkle. And I think my parents were all on board. But naturally, I am an Indian girl and I am their oldest child and I'm their baby. And they couldn't see themselves letting me go to live in a summer in New York City by myself for three months. And so they did express their concerns. And I was Unfortunately, I had to text Dr. Fowdery. I don't think that I can make this work. And I apologize. And I would have loved to do this. And Dr. Fowdery immediately goes, well, listen, I have another medical assistant. I think you would really like her. Let me give you her number. Why don't you give her a call? So I give her a call. And what was supposed to be a 15-minute conversation turns into three hours, the best hours of my life, because this girl, to this day, her name's Indira. She is my best friend. We um, talk all the time. And she 
In response, she was like, why don't you come live with me for the summer? No rent. Don't worry about it. Just come live with me and just spend, spend the summer with me. I'm living by myself. And I couldn't believe that I was this lucky. And that's exactly what I did. I lived with her. I had the best summer of my life. I got to do so many things working for Dr. Chowdhury from just talking to patients to like, you know, getting to see him in action, doing the surgeries. And also he just, he wouldn't let me just watch. He would explain everything he's doing. He never made me feel obnoxious or annoying for asking these questions. In fact, he encouraged them. And he got so, so comfortable with me. And he trusted me so much to actually ask his patients, do preliminary questions with them, talk with them one-on-one. And it meant so much to me that he had this much trust and faith in me. And he never, ever once treated me like an intern. I think throughout the entire thing, there's one thing that I can say and attest his character about. It's the fact that he treated me like a colleague. And he always told me, Rupa, you're not an intern to me. You're not. You're someone I'm going to be working with one day. And knowing that was such a, such a pivotal moment in my entire academic career that here is this person that I truly look up to that is truly so accomplished telling me that he sees me working with him one day. There isn't a single doubt. And there was never a conversation about, can you do it? If you want to do it, will you be able to do it? It was always, can't wait to see you here in a few years. So that is Dr. Chowdhury. That is my experience there. And that is just the beauty of LinkedIn. Honestly, the fact that I was able to meet him through this platform. And now I grow to call some of these people, one of my my role models, my best friends, my biggest fans, and my um, always supporters. It's powerful. Yeah. It sounds like he put a lot of responsibility and trust in you. I feel like you have to send him this podcast now. After oh, saying all that. <laughs> uh, so if someone was, let's say they've already built their LinkedIn, but it's just sitting idle, right? Like they haven't really been using it. Give me two or three tips that you would share with that person on like how to start networking. The tips that you use to beat all the Ross students. Well, if you want to beat the Michigan Ross students, here you go. <laughs> First of all, don't be afraid to say hi. I think that's what stops people is that they assume that LinkedIn is for, you know, connecting with people that you know. Reaching out to people you know or would like to know, you know, even if it happens to be a mutual friend. If it, even if it happens to be someone that's not in your field, but you know, you're really interested by the stuff that they're doing and you'd love to build that connection, maybe it'll help out in the future. So don't be afraid to say hi. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean just send a hi, I think you're a cool message. Really get to know them. Go go stalk their LinkedIn a little bit. Um, know what they're about. That person spends time on their profile, as anyone should, and dig, do your research and question them. Question them. People, people love to answer when they know that you want to know about them and that you have some sort of interest or passion in what they're passionate or interested about. So take that first step. I think that's my first piece of advice. The second advice would be you don't have to be the absolute queen in everything or king, you know, in everything that you do in order to have a good LinkedIn profile. LinkedIn is about obviously showing your accomplishments and showcasing what you're doing but also just showing things that you're passionate about whether it be professionally related or not. You know, whether that means talking about a blog that you just really like to write or typing up maybe someone else or your friend that maybe just got a position or just got into school and they've been waiting for it for a very long time. It's, it's about supporting each other. It's about encouraging each other. It's about taking that mindset of competitiveness and, I guess, sabotage in this day and age and in this world and turning it into something so special and so encouraging. 
I think that's what LinkedIn should be used for. And I think what it continues to be used for is those little comments, those little like um, buttons and just literally letting a person know that you support them and you're proud of them in every aspect of life, no matter what that, what is it, what it is that they're doing. The last thing I was going to ask you about was the new Taco Bell menu. Because <laughs> you seem to be quite a fan. I mean, I know every Indian is. I've long said that Taco Bell is just McDonald's for Indian people. But what are your thoughts? This is a very sensitive topic for me. I did a lot of grieving when, you know, we lost our staple items from Taco Bell. I say we because this is a collective community. My entire family is a big Taco Bell fan. We often joke that we actually keep the Taco Bells in our small town in business. Like if it wasn't for us, I don't think they would be in business. And I, I firmly stand by that statement. I think this feels like a very deep question. I know it isn't, but I'm just so passionate about the fact that we lost the spicy tostada. Like is someone going to say something? Like I feel like I need to make my next blog post petitioning for Taco Bell to bring back these items because it's heartbreaking. Also, I feel like on a tangent note, everything's gotten so much more expensive and that's not cool, Taco Bell. So if you're listening to this, you know, help the homie out and please bring back the spicy tostada. That's all I have to say. They made their menu fancy and they jacked up the prices. It's got that black backdrop now. And then they got rid of the Mexican pizza, which I find like incredibly offensive. I feel like they're attacking me personally. But... Now I'm also torn because I read their reasoning for it and they said that they're trying to cut back on paper use. Yeah. It's a packaging thing. I don't know. I, I think it's worth There are some trade-offs we need to make, right? Like keeping the Mexican pizza around. I think we'll find another planet. Elon will get us there. <laughs> okay, that's, that's perfect. I appreciate you being on, Krupa. Of course. Talk to you soon. Bye.